Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got into the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Ability Magazine publisher and former National Lampoon publisher, Chet Cooper. In this podcast, we go a little deeper into the story of Christopher Reeve, an amazing actor whom, as you will recall, fell off a horse and broke his neck, resulting in complete paralysis for his remaining years. It is astonishing to think of the man who was Superman becoming the man who would never fly again. This is the first podcast where Chet Cooper reflects on not only his groundbreaking interview with Reeve, but also on the media pressure that led up to it and the varied voices that demanded Reeve be a role model for the disabled. A fascinating perspective on Christopher Reeve, the man who was and will always be Superman. It's been nearly a week since actor Christopher Reeve tumbled from his horse, incurring a devastating spinal injury. His doctors say that he is now experiencing some feeling in his upper body, but he remains paralyzed from the neck down, unable to breathe on his own, and communicating only by mouthing words. Generally, when there's an injury in the spine, the higher up it is, the worse it is, isn't it? So Chet, when Christopher Reeve had his terrible accident, how did you come to know him? Did you know him before the accident or just after the accident? Tell me about how that relationship grew. So my first uh, connection with Christopher Reeve came about not because of him personally or or knowing him prior to the accident. Uh, it was the outcry of frustration from the disability uh, community or leadership or the, the people that that are dealing with the upfront advocacy work. Uh, they were quite frustrated at what was coming out in the media about Christopher Reeve being now the spokesperson for people with disabilities. For what reasons? His parent role uh, with it, with that being his label of everything focused on being able to walk again. 
and the whole um, media push. The subtext was, if you can't walk, you're not a whole person. And so uh, I was getting a lot of information coming through these channels that the majority of people probably in the country didn't know about. Um, and the magazine was relatively new. It had only been around for a few years. Um, and it was really a, a sensitive topic, to say the least, um, where he was beloved by most of society. Um, media didn't understand really what they were doing in the sense of the frustration from all the work that had been laid prior to this incident that um, you don't need to to walk. You, using a wheelchair is just a form of mobility, and it's the person's ability, not the disability, that you should look at. So all of this work was they felt was going down the drain. So uh, the times that there might be an interview with um, with Chris, we 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 didn't push for that. Uh, we just wanted to see things settle down and uh, and then we could bring this two stories together and talk about that. So uh, eventually uh, there was enough push by the um, Chrisory team um, that to, to invite us to come in um, to his house in New York and uh, meet with him. And I thought I was still a little bit sensitive. So my thought was, um, let me get someone in the disability leadership, if you will, to come along and be that person to have that interesting debate between the two seemingly different camps. So I had set this up where I was going to get Dr. Fred Fay involved. When I remember going to his home, I, um, Drove up to New York and uh, went to his house, and Dana Reeves um, answers the door. There's an angelic component to this person, and I I come up with my uh, my sister lives in New Jersey, so I came up, decided to visit her, and she brought her two uh, young boys. But while I was in meeting with Christopher, I actually did hear it just as I was um, closing the door. Dana Reeves was in the kitchen singing and I remember my sister telling me about her sitting there for uh, the time I was doing the interview of how angelic her voice was as well and um, and I got my sister and nephews to meet Christopher before I started the interview so that was a, a nice moment for everyone to connect up kind of on an interesting family level and um, so my interview started with Christopher and it was it was like somewhat standard, but I had asked um, if I can bring someone else into the conversation, which was Dr. Fred Fay. Now, Dr. Fred Fay is, uh, was a um, well-connected person within D.C. and other areas of advocacy. He had uh, a spinal cord injury at a very early age and created a, a cyst had created uh, in his spinal cord from the injury that was um, was possibly going to move if he changes, um, if he sat up. And the surgeons said, we can't take it out, and if it moves, he'll die. So what he had done is he had been in bed for 20 years. Uh, when I met him, 
um, in Massachusetts and spent a weekend with him. Um, he had motorized his bed. And so he could get around his house by, by laying flat on his back and, and, and scooting around his house and hardwood floors. And he had computer screens. This is a kind of a, a novel setup that he had created that is not so novel these days with flat screens, but he had created a system around his bed that he could, uh, telecommute, um, into the areas of Washington, DC, into the White House and have these discussions with the, uh, uh, the administration at the time. So, um, so I got Dr. Fred Faye to, uh, agree to, to talk with Christopher. So the, uh, as the interview started, I put them together. I asked Christopher, is it, is it okay to, for me to do this? And he agreed. Now you have to realize that Christopher had been traveling a lot and he had, um, traveled too much to where he actually acquired a cubitus, a, a bed sore, um, which, infected and the doctors had said you have can't travel you have to lie flat and you need this to heal because it's life-threatening so he was flat on his back when i met him in his bed and to that um, time he was still aggressively trying to talk to people interview uh, again do everything he can to find the cure for spinal cord research but for spinal cord injury so I put the two on the phone together and he, um, they start talking. The idea being, Dr. Fred Bay being one of the leaders in the disability movement would express the issues that were occurring at the time that, that the media wasn't really picking up on the frustration and going on in advocacy in, in programs that were in, in, in uh, groups that were picketing him, giving, um, voice to the idea of their frustration with him using always this cure concept rather than quality of life issues about people with disabilities and, and looking at the person's ability. So um, after I put them together, Fred really didn't get into that core issue that I was hoping would happen and that would be this lively discussion of, of where things were and, and, and an awareness too that may may or may not have occurred in Christopher's um, awareness of what was happening. So when I when I hung up and I, and I saw that that hadn't occurred, so... What did you want Fred to say when you brought him? Let me tell you what I was trying to do there. That didn't quite come out what I was expecting. And I shared with him this idea that the media had been, had put him into this leadership role as an advocate for people with disabilities. And, and Christopher immediately rejected that concept and said, I am not the spokesperson for people with disabilities. And I said, I, I agree, but what you're not understanding is that the media has done this. And so we went back and forth about getting to that level of him understanding, but him also pushing back, like, I am not that person. So we went back and forth and, and I, I think the message got across with what I was saying, but it, it took a little of, I could have probably done a better job, I felt. And I, I asked him at the end, I said, um, was I hard on you? And he said, yeah, my heart dropped. It was really painful for me to think that you know, beating up this person who once was Superman. And I don't think he had even had the ability to move the finger, which came a little bit later. Actually, while I was there, the sun was coming through a, a window. And I was watching the uh, sun move across his face and his 
he got to his eye. I said, do you want me to pull down that shade because it may be hurting you? And he said, no, I actually feel that. And it, and it's good to have sensation, which is, you know, again, kind of troubling for somebody who's having what, what you call a tab. I'm temporarily able body. I'm able to do things with, with my physical body. And, and here he, um, is limited to the support of others, but with a great mind, which was, um, evident to, uh, to the work that he was doing. So that, that was my first encounter with, Christopher. Help me understand the evolution of his thinking. Obviously, where it started was a place that it sounds like the community of those with disabilities didn't like the place it started for him. So it sounds like he was equating disability with the you know the if somebody was short or if somebody was not as intelligent or if somebody had brown eyes, you know, whatever the case may be, like something that nobody would consider to be a disability, um, he was equating in ways that made the community of disabled feel unfairly judged. Is that is that a fair comparison? I think um, over time, Christopher was more and more aware of what was happening with the disability movement after our discussion. Um, I think in the beginning, you know, I, like many people, even still today, they equate disability to not having ability. And um, he definitely had ability, just his attitude was so indicative to the spirit of who he was to begin with pre, pre-accident. pre um, Actually, the next time I met him was on the set of the practice. He was on the show. He was playing a character, which was a nice plot twist. Um, so he, he went back to acting. I should say our relationship grew from there. One of our programs with our nonprofit is a project with Habitat for Humanity. And we created a program called the Ability House and it's homes built uh, for families of disability with disabilities of low income. But we access volunteers with disabilities to build the homes. He, he realized in his progression of maturation around disability, uh, that there were, I think anyone in the beginning, if you acquire an accident, you want to get back to where you were immediately. And that's what he was trying to do with, with his push for spinal cord research, which he had raised millions and millions of dollars, moved science along, putting a lot of resources, monies, and the weight of his celebrity into um, actionable items. And so he had a lot of celebrity friends that brought in more awareness, brought in more funding. And the message eventually changed from just pure, I need to, to you know, make me a rat and do whatever to me. And I, I just need to walk again to uh, ideas of, okay, there's a social, um, there's a medical model, a social model in that construct should be looked at such as look at the person, not just the disability, which I think, um, Within a relatively short period of time, he, he grasped that and he actually started to say he is a disability advocate and he was a spokesperson. But that took a little time. Like I think anyone would take some time um, to do that. And this was quite a unique situation and, uh, and quite a troubling um, uh, accident. When you think of science, you think if, if just that disconnection in the spinal cord is just needed to fuse together in some basic way of, of welding something together, it seems like that should be a, 
a relatively simple maneuver, which of course it is not. And the good thing about those research uh, issues that it does affect other situations, other diseases that occur that, that are, are there that will kill you if the um, disease continues on. So those research um, grants that, and monies that were raised actually help people that acquire diseases as well and just uh, just injury. How are Christopher's attitudes towards this new disability, how are they indicative of how a lot of people who didn't grow up with disability or um, with other people who had disabilities, do you think he ever found the right balance between fighting against what he felt like was disability and acceptance of the disability itself as part of his life? When, when you have a person that is so driven, if you look at his life history and his, just everything he did in life, whether it was sports or horseback, um, I mean, the, the activities that he was doing were quite um, extreme to some degree. And I think he did everything from yachting to airplanes to horseback competition um, and acting. He was a very driven um and I think anyone in that mindset will continue to try to push the limits of science, whatever that might be, uh, which is not only benefiting, of course, the individual, but benefiting many others. So I don't think that um, you ever settle into not wanting to do that. I think it's, it's a life mission at that point. But I do think he settled into understanding. Um, I mean, the, the fact that their foundation shifted and, and started doing life quality of life grants I think was indi an indicator that there was this awareness that people do live with disabilities. They, they are uh, productive. They, they are, some people are born with disabilities, some acquire disabilities. And, and so some of those situations are best looked at as, are they having an equal playing field in society? And sometimes they're not. So therefore grants can, can help with that, whether it's assistive technology that might be needed. Or issues around accessibility in, in, in your home, whatever the case may be. Um, in what we were doing in the grant he gave uh, our nonprofit was making a home accessible for someone who needed an accessible home because of age. What are some of the unawarenesses from people that don't have disabilities that are most hurtful or frustrating to those with disabilities? Just currently, there, there's a situation where a uh, person in Texas who had COVID-19, there was a critical issue with the hospital determining if he should continue to help this person regain their health or not continue with the medical uh, procedure that, that anyone else would have had in that person's condition. The fact that um, the hospital looked at him, was a quadriplegic, by the way, and their response to the medical care should alarm everyone in that there, there seemed to have been made a decision by the hospital that the, um, the determination was um, made due to his disabilities, that uh, life uh, would not be supported. So it's, it's really troubling to think um, of how oftentimes the medical model or the people that you would think would be there to support everyone's lives sometimes has a mindset um, that 
sometimes society has, and that is a person's life that, like Chris and Reeve, uh, is not of value, and that even Jerry Lewis had said when he, he was doing all this raising of monies, but he said a person in the wheelchair is only half a person. And when asked, he said, well, he can't get up and run down the hallway. But um, the irony about that is at the end of his life, he was using a wheelchair. And they didn't get to ask him, well, do you feel like you're half a person now? Are you still, are you still Jerry Lewis? That just happens not to be able to walk at the moment. So I think what people might need to, to reevaluate is, is thinking of your own life and thinking if you happen to be or a family member and you acquire some disability from an accident and your, your life has shifted now instead of using sneakers or using wheelchair to get around, whatever that situation might be. Um, do you really feel like you should not have medical treatment if, if you get ill? I mean, is that something that we want as a society to, to uh, condone? Uh, you know, what is this idea of, Disability, and, and there will be people out there that might hear what I'm saying and say, well, it, it helps the gene pool if you get rid of people with disabilities. And the irony of that, you don't know what the gene pool really needs. So maybe you do need, um, certain disabilities that will maybe fight a, a thing like a, a pandemic that maybe that particular disability is not, can, it won't be affected by. It. I mean, there's so many scenarios that you could paint that shows we don't know what what's what but the fact that you would be so um, callous and thinking you're the right way to affect someone else's life and not do what you should do as a human um, I think is troubling yeah I mean what I was imagining was you know this world that we live in every day it was largely built by people that can walk and talk and see and hear and use their arms, um, use their hands. But if this world had been built by a species of animal that had no legs, but looked like a human in every other way, then our world would be totally different in many ways, functionally. And so what I'm trying to imagine is from a empathetic standpoint, when you approach disability, then saying, well, what if the tables were turned and 90% of the people had this particular disability, what would the world look like? Right? And then the people that were that, that didn't have that disability would live in a world that was largely shaped by the people that had a particular disability. But that would that disability would then be the baseline. Whereas right now the baseline is the majority of people who you know may not have a particular disability. I, I'm trying to just f work it out in my own mind what it is that the disabled are asking for such that I could try to be more empathetic with the desired ask and the desired outcome. So um, I, I, I remember seeing a Twilight Zone episode um, where everything's topsy-turvy and you, you, you're only seeing a, a view from one aspect um, the way they filmed that episode, I can't remember all the details, but basically the flip was that everyone looked different. It was the person who they were trying to quote fix, cure, um, that was in subjectively or objectively uh, beautiful in, in, in our eyes. 
but the rest of the world were um, were, were totally uh, of a different look, and and um, and so that person was trying to get an operation to make them like everyone else, and it wasn't working, and and, and the, the doctors were all shocked that it didn't work, and and uh, and, and basically we're going to put them off into a some camp or something like that for for those that had that physical disability of, of appearance. Um, but when, if you think of um, Darwin and survival of the fittest, um, you really, you can't know, uh, science can't predict uh, what that survived, what, what is it that would be um, that key element because things, you know, life is dynamic. Um, as we're seeing with COVID, um, while we might have expected a pandemic of some sort, you don't know what that pandemic really will come out to be. Mm-hmm. And what if, what if, for example, um, people that had um, ADHD or or some or, or, or some kind of a problem with their spine had this um, condition that put out a chemical within the body to, to autoimmune deficiency? For that person, but that autoimmune disability uh, issue actually was capable of fighting COVID, where the population would uh, would need that, and so it's people with this, those disabilities became the hero, and, and they were the ones that would become the dominant in the species. I mean, there's so many um, scenarios that can be painted in that sense that um, we we don't know, and so for us to um, play God, if you will, in, in whose life is worth, um, we don't know. And, and, and things work in mysterious ways. So we, um, I think that this is kind of rich for, for storytelling and um, creating these novel movies, if you will, on, on issues that uh, you wouldn't expect. Um, but the bottom line is we, I think, as, as human beings, as the majority, most of the people I always believe um, react accordingly when, when something happens. If you look at, um, the number of people that will help anyone in a disaster, you don't stop and say, are you Republican? Are you Democrat? Are you, are you where were your parents born? You go in and you, you, you work with that community and you help that community and people come together and, and act as a village and help each other. And it's no, you don't have tribalism. You don't have national nationalism you're, you're there to support I mean, the irony of, of mass of tragedy of whether it's earthquakes or floods or fires people actually come together as humans and i've always found it um, a curious thought of how do you get that to come out in people on a regular basis rather than just during trauma during times of disaster do you see any parallels between the struggle for awareness in the community of disability and the struggle for awareness in the Black Lives Matter current campaign? Well, I think there's a lot of parallel with any civil rights movement. Within the advocacy of disabilities, it's always been couched in positions of the civil rights movement. So whether it's gotten to the public awareness in that sense or not, I'm not sure. But when you look at Black Lives Matter, uh, it's, it's always been a civil rights case. Um, with society's 
view and, and, and changing whether it's laws that are in the books from segregation to you know it's still issues today with gerrymandering there are so many uh, components that um society tries to address as as society matures and becomes more aware of issues that that may be uh, under the radar for some and, and as it exposes it's it's that we had people start to become more aware i think in the disability movement it's it's a, it's a very unique situation it's the largest minority in the country in the world it's the only minority that anyone can join at any moment in time and um, majority of people will join it because of age reports are that on the average um, everyone will experience one or more disabilities for 13 years in their own lifetime now that that usually occurs because of age as we lose our hearing, osteoporosis, cancer, different diseases so affect the bodies. As, as we're talking right now, our bodies are falling apart. If this was on video, you'd see that pieces of me are falling off as we speak. So it's not funny. Um, there are, there are <laughs> movements afoot that are trying to address, um, the, the awareness of that we're all in this together. Um, we, are, we, Usually, use language that disabilities are part of the fabric of life, um, and I see that in the sense of awareness building, whether it's through BLN um, and in the fact that there's there's a been an ongoing um, whether it's conscious or unconscious uh, situation to not create an equal playing field. It's a similar thing with disabilities, independent disabilities are so broad, but let's say accessibility or, or employment, accessibility within uh, getting into work or into a building or things that are uh, PDF forms that are not accessible for someone that's blind so they can't access certain things. So there, there are barriers both for people that are black, but there are barriers in such a way coming from even zoning issues within certain areas of the country. So I, I do think there are absolute parallels between the two movements. But the frustrating part about all that is also if you have a disability and you're a minority, it becomes even more of a struggle and more of a, a challenge uh, to break through, whether it's employment or just socialization. So there are, there are slow movements afoot of, of how to make things more accessible for people with disabilities, both on a social level and on the employment level. We, we deal with that ourselves. We created the first job board for people with disabilities in 1995 and now recently created the first accessible online career fair. But what we've seen with, with minorities, the idea of, of hiring someone who not only has a disability, but has a minority because they, they still have a, um, a higher threshold of breakthrough, which is some of the work that we are still working. So Christopher Reeve, you came to confront him. He brought this other gentleman who also had a disability. And how did that confrontation go? Did I go to confront Christopher Reeve? Um, I suppose I did. I, I wouldn't have thought of it exactly like that. But there were times that you um, okay confront people um, on... Or, or ask them and see where their minds are. What what are what are they thinking? And what is it that maybe is 
not evident to the way the story has been already pushed out there. What did the past, did anyone interview the person? Did they ask certain questions? Um, did, did it come out in such a way that it, it, it's not a bleed or lead story, which is not something we typically like or do? Um, oftentimes media is, is, is so pushed toward, uh, ratings that they lose sight of what, what they're supposed to do. Even some of the best news outlets, uh, still compete, um, with, with wanting more eyeballs, more hear, hearing people wanting to, um, be the first to break a story. And so the idea of looking at and seeing if there's some, something more with Christopher was quite of an interest to me, but I also, um, the idea of me being the one doing this, I felt like there should have been a third party involved, but you're bringing out that, that idea that I think everybody has some degree of empathy to, to other people. Sometimes they don't know that there's something happening for them to bring that empathy out. And also understanding that there's a difference between uh, pity and empathy and that the pity model is a very destructive model, especially within the disability arena. And, and you need to address those issues of, um, asking if somebody needs some support or help or just suggesting in to them, you need my help. It's, it's two sides of a coin that, um, are really different. And you need to understand that you have a, Another mindset that's how I used to travel with a young man that was, um, really physically fit and we jumped on a, a local bus and it was not accessible. So here's a strong guy. He throws his wheelchair into the, into the bus and then muscles himself up the stairs and somebody on the bus immediately goes, all good intentions to help him, but does not ask just grabs his shoulders. Um, and my friend almost punched him in the face. Of course, the person had no idea what was going on. Wait a minute. I wanted to help you. And you just don't do that. You just don't grab somebody. But his view was, I'm trying to help. And, and we had a discussion with him, you know, what, what was going on. I don't know if we got through to him because I think he still was in shock that how can I, how can anybody mad at somebody that's trying to help? But that pity approach that I, that an instant idea, of you need my help instead of asking is problematic and problematic in what we call the medical model of looking at people in such a way that they, uh, they need our support because they don't have that ability rather than asking if that support is needed. One of the things that this conversation makes me reflect on is where is the line of disability? Like compared to LeBron James, I look disabled on the basketball court. So where's that line? Well, I, I think your um, lack of basketball ability would not be considered a disability. Um, sad to say for you, you can't use the ADA to protect you with uh, competing against LeBron. Uh, a disability is, is identified, um, lack of one or more life activities. It's been more defined by uh, a 2008 um, redefinition by Congress um, because the Supreme Court had ruled that a person with epilepsy, if they're taking the medication and their seizures has, have stopped, they, they're not determined to have a disability and therefore not protected under the ADA. 
And in that, it actually started to define what a disability is. And the reason that's important is there's a part of the law that's a discrimination and you can't discriminate and you're protected if somebody finds out you have epilepsy and they don't hire you. So that's, that's part of what ADA can protect you. And, and it's defined. It specifically, they called out things like uh, epilepsy and cancer. The idea is to create an equal playing field and not have issues that would hinder the ability of a person uh, in travel and employment, having reasonable accommodations. And again, it's a reasonable accommodation. So it doesn't say for a small company, okay, you're going to have to knock out that wall to make it accessible for this one particular employee. It's, it's not reasonable. So there are buildings out there that are old that have not been modified and can't afford to modify for something. Um, there are different ways to look at what a, co- a reasonable accommodation means. Um, but, you know, reasonable accommodation for you to have a step ladder to play against um, <laughs> the that would not be considered a personal disability, let alone reasonable accommodation. Chet, this has been fantastic. It's so interesting. I mean, it's a, it, it, there are a lot of gray areas. It's a, it's a very interesting philosophical exploration. I wonder how many philosophers there are in the world who focus on the question of disability. All right, Chet, thank you for taking the time. This has been fantastic. I'm Ryan Millsap. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast I share inspirational sayings that I write and share on Instagram. There is not one good reason to not let it go. There is not one good reason for worry. There is eternal reason to be present now. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Studios and at ryan.millsap.